Hi, everyone, and welcome to This Much I Know, the SeedCamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who've built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today, I'm joined by author, TED speaker, journalist, Kenneth Kukier, who is the main guy at The Economist. Uh, he's the Economist senior editor for Data and Digital. Other things that he's done that are partly we're going to cover today, but also just really interesting if you have time and you want to go explore some of his content. He's the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Big Data. He is uh, the TED Talk that he, he gave, which is a really great listen, is why big data is a big deal. He also is on the board of several organizations, including Chatham House and the board of International Bridges to Justice. So he's definitely very involved with the community and other areas of interest. Now, in terms of, of his background, um, we're going to cover a little bit about, about it, but it, from, from the quick chat I had with Kenneth, uh, it seems like, Kenneth, you've had a long career in journalism. You, seemed, you started off in Paris studying journalism, political science, and philosophy, and then you did your grad degree in philosophy, if I'm not mistaken. But it was in 1992 that really the bug around technology bit you, and then you started specializing in tech journalism. Let's pick up the story up from there. Yeah, so yeah, thanks, and um, what an honor to be on the podcast. So that's exactly right. I was a uh, worker bee at the International Herald Tribune in Paris in 1992, fresh after leaving, where actually I was initially getting my graduate degree in philosophy until I decided I was pulled by the world of, uh, of real things that happened the day before to communicate with people uh, at the newspaper, and so left the studies. But it was 1992, and the World Wide Web was uh, percolating just down the road in Geneva that I realized, hey, this is really interesting, and if this really takes off, it's going to change a lot of things about society, business, the economy, politics. A lot of assumptions that we have are all actually uh, assumptions, a lot of features of society. And so when you add a, this virtual digital cyberspace component to it, uh, things get really interesting. And so I decided I was going to specialize as a technology journalist. I did that, um, read everything I could get my hands on, accepted all the interviews, and started writing about technology and went from there. And so in, in 93, 94, it was weird. People thought of technology as just another industry, as if someone was covering farm policy or covering, I don't know, oil and gas. And it, now, of course, we see it as very different. We see it as a really an epochal moment in history that this is really defining our era in the same way that the printing press defined another era or that Bronze Age would have defined how people and a lot of, you know, how militaries fought, how buildings were constructed. And so, uh, then it wasn't so clear, and a lot of people rolled their eyes, thinking that this that the internet was the their modern version of the eight track cassette tape, that it was just going to go away. It was a flash in the pan, mumbo jumbo, and uh, I didn't think so. So I went full throttle, and here I am. So in that journey, you've seen a lot of things uh, be like game changers, and one of them we could probably all agree on is the mobile revolution and how much mobility added to how things. Um, unlock things on our mobile and services and location-based services. And I think we're at the cusp right now of data being one of them and machine learning being another enabled by, by available data, open and closed. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that. So I know that you've been focusing a lot of the content you're creating these days on both those topics. And maybe you can tell us when you started sensing that this was um, a thing that was going to be driving change and kind of how has it evolved up to date? 
Great question. Like all things uh, that defines one's life, it's very sort of almost mystical of how you stumble upon it and, all, and, and, and luck and all that. The, the superficial answer is that around 2009, um, I had this, I just had the idea that um, The Economist was looking for uh, cover stories that the, the appeal goes out in the summer and you spend about a week writing a very long proposal, maybe two or three thousand words, how you would break it down as a big meaty cover story, a 15 page report in the paper. And I did one on, on data because I thought it was just interesting. I thought that our era had, was fundamentally different than other eras because the amount of information was constantly growing. But what I realized in pursuing that idea was that there was a lot of small little antecedents that it was tapping into. Uh, and specifically, I had a fellowship at the Kennedy School of Government in 2002, so almost, almost 10 years earlier, uh, maybe seven years earlier. And I remember... There we were talking about data, and it was right at the time when the social sciences were moving into the quantitative social sciences, and the first researchers uh, were adopting models and methods from computer science for political science, and this was happening everywhere. And and the, the traditional departments didn't know what to do with it, the journals didn't know what to do with it, no one was accepting their papers, and one of my roommates, kind of Matthew Heinemann, who is a uh, political scientist, was one of those people who was doing these qu heavily quantitative methods for political science. And I, and I was, because of that, I was ruminating on this idea of information in society uh, and data in society and what was a moment, what was time, what was an instant, what is information. It was a little bit Claude Shannon-y stuff, but it was, it, was, it was very modern as well. It was also not as bright and mathematical as Shannon, but still it was sort of in that vein of really, as we have the Whig interp interpretation of history, this would be the big data interpretation of history that I was just groping in the dark about. I realized many years later that some of those early answers of my ruminations, ill-formed ruminations, would then come out as I was interviewing people, pioneering this new world of big data, which is simply a popularized term for machine learning. And it was through doing that that, um, that I was now in the big data game and that I pursued machine learning as a journalist, wrote a report, wrote a book on it, and then that's now sort of defining my career because I'm so interested in it that I'm applying what I know about data to The Economist, and I'm also thinking about my next book on AI because AI and machine learning is going to be as important to society as the printing press was, or fire was, or bronze was, or the internet was. It's, this is just because it's coming in sequence very quickly with uh, the internet Uh, doesn't mean that its importance to how it, its effects on society are going to somehow be less than, say, the internet or something like the printing press. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that impact and, and kind of we're at that stage of where that impact is. But there's probably a lot of things that need to happen before that impact can fully materialize. And if you think about the fire analogy, you have to master fire. You have to master when you turn it on, when you turn it off, how to contain it to create an internal combustion engine. And then now we're at a stage of complete dominance of the concept of fire. And yet we're very early stages in this concept of how to have a black box that, that learns through data. Maybe we, you can walk us through that evolution of data. Sort of what are the components that need to evolve? Uh, you, I think you refer to this as liquidity of information in one of your talks, but it's like, what are the components that need to evolve to get us to the point where we have the equivalent We're just starting off the fire revolution right now for us to get to the internal combustion engine. It, it's a really deep question. I think we could actually spend an hour unpacking it and going through all of that. Why don't we start with just the liquidity of information and then see where that leads us. 
So when I refer, when I use that term uh, in the TED Talk, I was thinking specifically of the idea that information has gone from a stock to a flow. And what I was, the reference I was thinking of at the time was first the clay disks that how people stored information. This is now about 4,000 years ago. And then even on paper, which is how we stored things, what, really about up until about 50 years ago, it was hard to store information. Sure, we could, we, we, we stored it on a fixed media. And the term fixed media comes from American copyright law, right? And so it could be a phonograph record, it could be a picture on the wall of the Louvre, and it could be uh, words uh, on paper. And if you don't have the words on paper, you don't have, as we normally think of information, information that can be transmitted, but it's a stock and you have to carry it from one place to another. It's enshrined in the single moment. It's not dynamic. It doesn't change. To change is actually really difficult. We know about the scribes in the Middle Ages and the palimpest in which they clear off the vellum and put something else on it, destroying what's underneath or mostly destroying it. Um, what does it mean to, for information to be a flow? The fact is, we have no idea what this means because it is so bloody new to us. So how is healthcare practice today? Sure, we take some measures. It's usually written on a clipboard on the side of the patient's bed, right? And a doctor is going to look at, say, the temperature reading on an hourly by hour basis and make a decision. It doesn't look too different from 50 years ago. Sometimes we actually record more than information. Sometimes we just throw it out because it's, we don't pay for the storage because we don't have the tendency to do that. We don't have the culture of doing that. We don't learn from the data as a flow. But if we rethink about this in a totally different way, really in a almost a, in a very late 21st century way, even though we're at the beginning of the 21st century, what would that mean? What would it look like? How, how does things that happen change? So let's go into healthcare because it's just so easy and it's so important to us. Uh, if it's right now a stock, information still treated as a stock, the EKG is a perfect example of the flow, the heart rate. And, you, and we watch that over time. Again, we don't save that data and we don't aggregate it at the population scale. But if we were now treating healthcare as a flow, then your Fitbit that was doing not just your, your steps as a pedometer, but actually doing your biochemistry and maybe you know sequencing things and looking at... Uh, at, uh, at, at other bodily changes, hormones that are being released or not, you would be looking at it at all times and you'd be able to learn something new. So we might actually find that if the toilet gets a st stool sample every day and that stool is looked for biological parts that would identify markers of cancer, you'd be able to spot the, the not just the susceptibility of a cancer, but the beginnings of the growth of a cancer long before, long before overt symptoms emerge. You're talking years early, right? The way it works now, healthcare as a stock, is you feel a lump, you present yourself to a clinic, they run some tests, and you've got a frozen moment of time of what your health looks like. When it's a flow, you're, you're constantly monitoring the patient at all times. You're identifying something new about how that patient's uh, life works and the progression of disease, so you can treat it with lower interventions, lower effect, you know, lower impact interventions, and you can probably remedy it better than you ever could before. Because by the time you have to cut it out or chemo it out, it's too late. But is it? Is it, in order for the flow to exist, don't we need to move towards a world where data sets are more available so that you can cross-reference, so you can have this sort of virtualized, normalized set of flowing data that services can provide um, 
uh, either medical practitioners or other people to be able to generate that kind of stuff? And where are we there? Yeah, well, that's exactly right. We're we're nowhere right now because we don't even have this sort of culture, this sort of this insight of data as a flow of the liquidity of information. Now, keep in mind, there's two things operating here. One is the N equals one and the other is the N equals all. What I'm referring to here is the N equals one, which is to say we are going to know everything about that individual. And what you're referring to now is the N equals all, which is, well, how do we know what's going on with this individual? How do we know that there's a susceptibility to cancer here or that this telltale sign means something else? And the answer is we will know it because we have run the analyses on the N equals all. When we take electronic medical records at the population level and we're able to identify all the things that are going on, all the traits that happen and how the diseases progress and aggregate it all, we then can apply what we learn to the N equals one. So what you're suggesting is, well, we don't even have a culture of collecting the data, of sharing the data, of processing the data. And you're right. And it's heinous. I mean, people should go to jail. You know, administrators of the NHS should have the perp walking on the Sunday news for not sharing data. Right now, the law and the culture around the law swings in the exact opposite direction. We actually blast headlines on the Daily Mail about sharing data, about the Moorfield Hospital and Deep Mind accessing data and aggregating it without patients' permission. When are the tabloids going to actually show hospital administrators that could have saved people's lives if they shared data so that they could apply science to the care of disease and patients and lives um, and, and, and out them for not sharing rather than for sharing? It's actually demented. It's, it's, the, it's the mark of an unwise society. So it takes people how, like me. How do you manage that? How do you manage that smartly? I mean, is there like, is this a meta question where like, do you need to have a set of data that knows how people will misuse data so that it then knows how to curate security constraints and, and permissions? I don't think it's data. I think it's values. I think it's story. It's narrative. It's, it's about the soul, if I may use that in you know, a podcast about data. It's about changing people's culture and values around the use of information, empirical information. We have been there before, right? Um, when the inquisitors looked at Galileo, it just didn't matter what his data said, right? They, in their heart of hearts, they just couldn't believe that the earth revolved around the sun and that, that the earth wasn't the center of the universe. And so they didn't care about data. But of course, today we now have the scientific method, at least most scientists apply to, that they look at the data and they, they relieve that. We, we have that understanding. Likewise, free expression, right? When, when Socrates had to drink the hemlock for corrupting the youth of Athens and he gave his apologia, his defense, of all the reasons that he cited for why he shouldn't actually have to drink the hemlock, he never cited free expression because the right of free expression didn't exist back then. When did we actually get laws and a culture around the laws to actually respect free speech? After the printing press, when finally speech could travel far enough that there was something there to protect. We don't even have the jurisprudence of free speech prior to the printing press. So too today. 
We don't even have this culture, this insight, and this value of sharing information. What we have is the anti-value. We have the negative. We actually obstruct people from sharing information. And I think that's, I think that's outrageous. I think it's dumb. I think, I don't think it's, we can't say it's criminal, but it's certainly as barbaric as bloodletting because it's uninformed. And they're relying on a muscle memory that is, is moot because the, the environment has changed. The situation's changed and they're still doing the same thing, not knowing it's changed. So if things are changing and machine learning is enabling a new way for tools and services to generate uh, decisions on behalf of, of humans and perhaps supplementing human decisions, then one of the things that you need to figure out to overcome that fear and the way that um, that the printing press had to overcome certain fears about dissemination of misinformation is the curation of these data sets, perhaps at the early days, to then generate the kind of uh, uh, algorithms that are not necessarily going to be detrimental to society. So think about it in terms of when you're educating a child, you don't allow them to watch certain kinds of movies because you don't want their algorithm, if you will, to be corrupted early on and therefore have a misguided interpretation of morality or desensitization to certain social issues. How do you open up something uh, legally? How do you open up data sets and expose them to uh, machine learning, evolving machine learning services, which might draw wrong conclusions from data sets of 100 years ago when civil rights weren't even uh, a thing. You might draw the wrong conclusions. How do you how do you curate that? How do you moderate that? How do you interject into that to have a curated black box determine the right thing so that you actually have useful services, not biased ones? Yeah, great question. So the we don't fully know yet because it's so new, but one thing that we could say, at least certainly in this early stage, is that we want a human in the loop, right? A human in the loop so that the answers that we get can be tested by human judgment, a sense of fairness, um, and a sense of ground truth. Pretty soon, what, 20, 50, 100 years from now, we will lose some of this ground truth because so many decisions will be made by algorithms. But for the moment, where everything is still artisanal, so to speak, because Medicine is artisanal. We have a human being as a radiologist reading the x-ray. Uh, and after 40 years of making good calls and bad calls, the person and then and recalibrating based on the feedback, you know, saying the person is totally healthy and the guy dies three months later and vice versa, that the person gets hopefully with experience a little bit more wise. They can't explain why they do all the things that they do. It's, it's called Polanyi's paradox but uh, that we know more than we can tell. It's called tacit knowledge, but can sort of suss things out. And of course, sadly, the way it works is the person gets really, really smart and then the person dies. And a new generation, a bright young thing from medical school takes over and makes the same mistakes until they get better. So everything that's done in society today pretty much is still done artisanal with, by a human. Now, machines are there to augment the human, but it doesn't really replace the human, except in certain areas. We're seeing that in finance. We're seeing the catastrophes of that as well. But sooner, but sooner than we think, the algorithms are going to start taking over. Before they do, we need to make sure they work. And so we don't want them to recreate our biases, but at the same time, so we, we hope that they will see things that we didn't see, do better than we did before. But at the same time, 
we want for certain cases, certainly the edge cases, but even for what is considered normalcy, we want the human being to supervise the algorithm and in so doing, train the algorithm so it gets smarter based on human values and human judgments. Uh, we're going to see more and more of that because it's going to be considered so essential. No, that makes sense. And I think that that training is part of the the labor that we need to, to sort of maybe start repurposing the labor force that will be displaced by some of these services that are coming. Um, Raz Kapoor, the founder of one of our companies, Third Eye, which you met, who is specializing in computer vision and security systems, has sent me a couple of questions. And one of them is straight from uh, your TED Talk in points that you made around 21st century white collar jobs disappearing. And his question is, should we be preserving jobs that could be replaced by AI just for the sake of employment? Wow. You know, the answer is a cautious, well, the answer is no, but that's, that's simply ideology. A deeper question is, how do we manage this transition? And if you think of it that way, then you think maybe sometimes there's a lot of instances in which you want the old technology to coexist with the new technology. I'll give you an example. When did the British Admiralty finally abandon Morse code? Answer, the year 2000. Every ship in the British Navy had to have a seaman who could actually tap out a Morse code on it until 2000. This is basically 80 years after radio was introduced on all British ships. So it's to say that we like redundancy and we like just preserving older technologies just in case, right? Go on old school, right? So every, uh, every, um, every aircraft has two pilots in it uh, as well, right? Uh, not one, and they also do very little flying, as we know, of, of real flying. So I think that we might find that we want to preserve jobs in part for uh, reasonable grounds of uh, ensuring the technology works. We also may want to do it for social policy. We have done, we do this all the time. Jobs don't exist outside of the policy, both political and economic constraints and social constraints around it. It is a fiction to say that it is a free market. It is anything but. And so we may find that we want to keep jobs just for the sake of being able to introduce the technology without people starving and, um, and, uh, and, and children not being able to you know, get proper upbringing because their, their parents are like in the, the dust bowl of the grapes of wrath in the 1930s going from Oklahoma to California looking for a job uh, picking vegetable, um, not being educated and, and dealing with all the odious situations on the way in John Steinbeck's great novel, The Grapes of Wrath. So this is a new view for me, and I'm coming around to it because I had really felt very much that uh, good capitalists, like, you know, we were all good Keynesians, which is the um, famous uh, quip of, um, of the economist who was visiting the Soviet Union and asked why people were digging a hole with shovels. And his Soviet uh, counterpart said, ah, it is not uh, simply a ditch, it is a jobs works program, to which the American economist said, then why don't you give him spoons? 
Right? So obviously it would take longer to shovel, and so you'd have more people employed. So I sort of agree with that, and I believe it um, unthinkingly. But when I think more deeply about it, I do believe that if jobs are truly destroying, excuse me, if technology is truly destroying jobs at a very quick pace, we might want to keep them around for multiple reasons, of which one is just simply social fairness. The, what tends to happen in previous technologies that were very job-destroying, such as the power loom for making fabrics, um, the steam engine, etc., was that uh, wages suffered as well as jobs. And people found other jobs, but the jobs paid less. And so at what, it took basically 60 years for, for wages to catch up with the downward pressure on them from the, of the technologies in the Industrial Revolution. 60 years is basically three generations. That's far, far too long. And I think that the effects of that were disastrous back then. It gave us the rise of communism and a lot of unrest. And, and, and in fact, you could say the first and therefore the Second World War was based on part of the dislocation of labor. I don't want that to happen again. So I think that um, we should uh, redistribution becomes critical, and so we need to th think seriously about modifying our what we feel to be the most efficient way to manage the economy, which was in the lightest touch possible, and therefore allowing the market for labor to go off on its own. And even if it means job destruction, allowing that to happen because it's for a greater good. To but, say actually maybe we shouldn't. But do you think that the the transition from somebody being displaced employment to a new type of role that is supplementing uh, AI is one that is intrinsically easiest for us because it is one that is something that we as humans have grown up with, which is preserving uh, free will, you know, understanding ethics and morals. And as a philosopher, you know, studying philosophy yourself, you might have a view on this, but is the role, the future job role of people that are displaced, one of safeguarding free will and human agency uh, and effectively monitoring the machines? Yes, but how many, the, the but is how many people do you need to monitor the machines? Uh, and what sort of skills do you need to do that? I, I look around my circle, my social circle, and I just sort of nod and I say, yep, we're safe. Like, <laughs> I, just, I just don't see a problem. Like, we're thoughtful, we're flexible, we, ha we have these sorts of skills that will allow us to really kind of do lots of things. I mean, it's, we're both non-British, and here we are living in London. Yeah. That, that suggests something about um, our natures. Um, risk-taking, pluck, self-confidence, ability to um, manage problems, um, and executive function. I look at um, uh, American cities and think about the, the skill set of the people who work in some of the uh, retail outlets, and I think people are going to have a problem, right? Um, the technology has in part been made pres to presume that the person is basically a robot, is as thick as a doorknob. Um, because the person doesn't have to add anymore, where they used to at a general store, because the, the cash register adds for them. They don't even have to be able to spell anymore of what the product is. You just look at the image and you don't have to read it. You can actually just press the button of the image. It's, or they use, you scan the goods rather than actually have to, have to understand it. Um, the, all of the intelligence now is in the machine and not in the individual. And the whole economy is managed this way, where, where before people had to, you know, at, the, at airports had to think through problems of getting passengers on and, and being gracious. Now all they have to do is just point you to the kiosk. So 
this is for I think a lot of people, this is going to be a problem because I don't imagine a lot. Of, I think I don't think a lot of jobs are going to be ones that they're going to be very good at doing. So I don't have a very good answer of what's going to happen to them. I I do believe I'm a, I'm a sort of a good capitalist and a good big dataist in so far as. We've been there before. I don't think this is going to be um, anything so dramatically different than in the past because we're going to be able to actually find jobs for people. Jobs disappear, but work doesn't disappear. So new jobs crop up around the technologies, doing things that rely on more human skills than we thought about before. And a lot of the skills that we do now are trying to teach. I'm going to push you on yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Then. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Because another one of Roz's questions is, given all the challenges that AI will present to society and opportunities, what should entrepreneurs, researchers, and the rest of the AI community be doing to address these issues? I don't think the AI community is, is the right one to come up with these answers. Okay. Who says? They should, the AI community should do what AI communities do. They build good AI. Yeah. Pig farmers should be pig farmers and, and legislators should, be, should legislate. Right? Why, why should it be up to the AI community to solve this problem? We've yeah. got lots of good policymakers who can think this one through. They should. That's their jobs. Mm-hmm. So how about entrepreneurs then? If you're going to... If you're gonna, based upon some of the conclusions that you've drawn, um, what would you encourage an entrepreneur to go embark on to help bring the transformation of society through shifting jobs to working around technology that's been created? Wow. So perhaps finding platforms that people could plug into to bring the, uh, their skills to the marketplace in a way that they can perceive the most value and satisfaction in life. What would that mean? So Etsy is a good example of, of unifying a community of craftsmen, of, 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 of artisanal craftsmakers, so that they could actually participate in the economy. What else would that mean? I don't actually really know, but I do have a feeling that as we go headlong into the AI world and so many aspects of life are done by algorithms and decisions that and actions that used to require a person like being a uh, a picker on a line on an assembly line or in a, in a warehouse now can be done by a robot because it's a very routine task or doing some managerial office work or legal work that can be done by a machine rather than a human being doing it because in the past we were trying to train human beings to act like machines now we get the machines to do it what we are going to really want, the backlash for that, is going to be things that are very soulful, human skills of intuition and caring and um, and this, and sort of the touch of the human. We don't have a good term for it. I think we have to go back to the Middle Ages before science became so predominant in society to see how we interacted in that sort of that Shakespearean world of um, of our shared common heritage and mystery of life and existence. I know this sounds very woolly, but I believe that that's where we're going to have to go um, to understand, well, what does it mean to to uh, be in the modern economy is going to be about bringing your humanness to your task. We already value that and we pay a lot for it. So we love the doctor who's got a good bedside manner. We pay a little bit more for it, a premium. I mean, I know lots of people pay a premium to dentists who are very good at explaining what they're doing while your mouth is open and the drilling begins. Likewise, most people, not most people, but many people are willing to pay for a nice coffee at a barista, at a coffee shop with a, with a barista who will do an artisanal task 
that brings th that person satisfaction as well as you satisfaction, even though you drink it really quickly, rather than just go to a place like Starbucks, even if the coffee would be the same, it's usually not, but even if it were, because we appreciate that sort of the handmade craftsmanship of it. And I think we're going to get more of that. And so the entrepreneurial opportunity would be, whether it's a platform or whether it's a, it's just ways that people could plug in their humanity into the technology to allow the technology to do better or for them to participate in the economy. I don't think it's TaskRabbit because I think that, um, and other sorts of things, or obviously Uber, because machines are just going to crop up onto, into that universe and take it. I don't know what it is, but I, that's my sentiment. That it'll be uh, the more humanistic side of things. So do you think that this is going to turn into some form of digital phrenology, basically where people's personal histories are collected and used to determine their future? And as a consequence of that, you're not really encouraging much dissension. You're, you're almost having um, convergence of, of tastes because the machines are basically uh, catering to the common and then you just shape the common and everyone just converges around one thing. So there's two assumptions that you, in your question. The first one is that it's phrenology, which is the study of the skull size to represent behavior, traits, and criminality of the reputed, quote-unquote, false science of quackery of the uh, 19th century. Uh, and then the second one is going to lead to convergence. Uh, unsurprisingly, I'm going to disagree with both. Great. So, the, for the, so the first one is, of course, because uh, that's, that's why you asked it. That's why I'll, I'll push back against it. So why the first? So what, who's to say that it's phrenology? Why, don't, why should we call it digital phrenology? Why don't we call it digital empiricism? Why don't we call it digital science? That in fact, if Shakespeare said the past is prologue, uh, then therefore um, we can identify uh, what people are likely to do based on what they've done in the, in, in the past. And so um, Oxford and Harvard admissions offices do this when they want to make a decision on a person. Uh, why shouldn't the rest of us? So the second is, why should that lead to a convergence of uh, interests and a sort of amalgam of people all coalescing around the same thing? My view is very different. I would actually think that where this is bringing us is to micro slice us in a way that it was unimaginable, where in fact, we are all incredibly atomized into our own little severe of us, unlike anyone else. We, and we could argue that we've seen the antecedents of that in the latest election with Donald Trump, in which people have fake news because what you saw and your news was customized and tailored so uniquely around you and what you've seen before and his to him and her to her that there was no commonality. So if anything, these technologies make it even more easy to atomize interests rather than to congeal it. The congealing nature was the broadcast media of the 20th century, where you had a big radio tower and you had to say the same thing to everyone, right? And in these new technologies, it can be not only targeted to you, but so targeted that you're smothered in its embrace. Which makes it almost impossible to drive uh, unanimous policy and for people to govern. And then you have microstates and you start having something like snow crash with micro citizenships. And that's probably the future of, of our society, perhaps. That may very well be the case. Um, I, I, I will accept that that may indeed happen. Excellent. Well, we like to wrap up with a couple of fun questions. The first one is, what's something you used to strongly believe in that now you think you're fundamentally misguided about? Oh, that's so good. Um, several things. 
One is that the world is a fair place. I don't think the world's a fair place. I think the world is uh, as it is. And I think that if that I think a lot of people want to ascribe a rationality and a fairness to it. And I think that when you get over the fact that the world doesn't owe you anything or that it's fairness, that you, you have to interact on it with a, with a much more, not ruthless, but a much uh, more muscular hand. And I see that because uh, great people write books and no one reads them. People get lucky uh, when, when good things happen to them for, that have nothing to do with what they've actually done. And I've seen that with uh, the rise of Trump. And, and, and Brexit, where just the most asinine situations that anyone can see is, um, is, are fraudulent, whether it's candidate Trump or, or the, a clownish former mayor of London, um, yet they would vote for it because they're not stupid, they're not nihilistic, they just didn't really care about maybe um, truth or um, the beauty of, of the right thing rather than the wrong thing. It's easier to smash um, a beautiful glass figurine than to make it. So people have smashed it because they just didn't think about it. It was an afterthought. They didn't care. So I think on one hand, it's the, it's the sort of rationality of the world. The second is, is as we talked about already, the jobs issue. I would have never have said what I said um, even three months ago. But I'm now really reconsidering it that although I do believe that we've been here before, things are going to work out. Uh, that I think the time scale and the pressure on wages mean that we need to come up with a better answer than the one that I've given until now. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, one of the questions I like to ask some of our interviews is what book has influenced them the most in their life? But because you wrote a book, this is also, uh, I'll give you the choice of plugging your book and sharing why you would like uh, other people to read it, but perhaps how you expect people to be influenced by it. Okay, well, thank you. Let me try to answer both. So I'll give a small, I'll give a small plug, not because I want to plug the book, but because I believe strongly in it, and I think the world would be a better place if more people read it. That's why I wrote it, after all. Uh, it basically, what it is, is it tells you why the current world that we're in, in terms of being able to collect data, store it, and process it, is so profoundly different than in the past that we can do new things to improve society. And when you read the book, you get sort of the mindset of appreciating data so that you could then see the world through the lens of data and then everything changes. And it's a little bit like the Galilean moment that once you realize, for example, that you can apply data and evidence to trying to take what was unpredictable and make it predictable, like how to build a bridge, um, suddenly everything else changes and you say, oh, of course, like now I can actually, I've got this toolkit with which to understand how to interact with the world in a, in a more mature way, more sophisticated way to do things I couldn't do in the past. And we can apply data to solve a lot of our problems. We'd be a smart society if we did, so we should. That's what the book is about. What book have I read? I mean, there's so many. It's tough to say. The, I guess there's only one. It's not a book per se, but it's just simply a phrase. It's the idea of the creative minority. In Arnold Toy, and it's, it's more pressing on me now because of Trump. You can see this the lead motif of our of our interview because he's such a because uh, it's such an abomination of to rationality and to all that humanity has fought for for so long and the whole principle of democracy that the, the, the Arnold Toynbee was a great historian British historian uh, and he referred to in at times to what he called the creative minority and what the creative minority was that small little two to five percent of society that cropped up in times of trouble to save society if it were to be saved at all. And that last little point 
uh, his, his, the sardonic melancholic historian, uh, always reminded us that actually civilizations do fall and, and things go backward. Uh, the barbarians sometimes are at the gate and pierce the gates. And so I think that we are at that moment right now. Uh, I have no doubt of it because, uh, because we have such, uh, uh, someone who wants to unwind, unwind so many sacred values, values that were so sacred that we, there were presumptions. We didn't even think that they were under threat anymore. So I think that it's the Toynbean idea of the creative minority having to step forward and hopefully not get burned at the stake. That's a very powerful thought to, to end with. Uh, thanks for joining us, Kenneth. And, um, hopefully we can continue our chat at some point in the future because there's a lot of good points that we'd love to explore further. Thank yeah, you. Thanks. Glad to be here.